No sputtering applause here, people. Just clap. Like, that was the best video I've ever seen in my life on how to raise a daughter. This ain't the TPC, understand? All right. Hey, get your Bibles. Uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 8. This is the 10th and final installment of this 10-week series. I'm a little amped up about it. We're talking about how to raise a daughter. I get super defensive, um, and it'll come across very unpleasantly. So get ready. Get your Bible. We've got a lot of work to do. Uh, dig in. Before we do this, I've got to introduce you to somebody. Uh, we've got an addition to the staff family. This is uh, Judah William Arkell. He was born on Monday. He's eight pounds, six ounces, and 21 inches. That's a keeper where I'm from. And uh, that's Jeff and Carly. Jeff is a deacon here, and Carly actually runs the whole church. She is my assistant, and uh, if you've ever tried to get in touch with me, she's the one you talk to. She's also on maternity leave for eight weeks, so I guess I am too, because I don't, can't operate without her. So um, I'll be here to preach, and that's all I know how to do. All right, hey, get your Bible, Song of Solomon. We've got a lot of work to do. We're only doing seven verses today. All right, so it's about 10 minutes of verses. The other services is about what it's worked out to. So I'm going to try to go fast. But this is the last week of this Song of Solomon series. I hope it's been helpful for you. It has been for me, because it at least you know, made me study about being a good husband a lot. And, um, and, and, and I'm just going to skip over the, the intro of all the other weeks that we've been through. And if you want to catch them, just go to the website or the podcast. But today we're going to talk about how to raise a daughter, okay? And so this message is for you. If you are a daughter, then pay attention. Um, if you have a daughter, like I do, then pay attention. And if you ever want to marry someone's daughter, then pay attention, all right? And so um, <clears throat> the, the best day of my whole life, I mean, I think the best day of my whole life, was the day Gretchen and I went in for a sonogram, mostly her, but I was there. I went to all those appointments, everything. It gets weird, but I was there for all of them. And uh, the day we do the sonogram, you know, and, and they they're look at me and they say, congratulations, Mr. Martin, it's a boy. And it was the greatest day of my life. I called my daddy and said, Daddy, I made a boy. And he's like, I knew you had it in you, son. And, and it was awesome. And I told him that because that's what he told his dad. You know, they didn't do sonograms back then when I was born. It's just, you know, he had to wait until it was out to figure it out what it, what it was. And so he called his dad on the phone and said, I made a boy. And so that's what I told him. And I was like, and, and it was super cool, too, because we named JP Joseph Perry Martin IV. I'm the third, daddy's junior, and then granddaddy is the original. And so we were going to call JP Quattro, but we thought it'd be confusing. So we went with JP. And I was stoked, super stoked. <clears throat> boy first. He's eight years old. And then, and then the scariest day of my whole life was the same office. We're back at the sonogram place. And they... Hey, congratulations, Mr. Martin. It's a girl. And Reagan immediately looked, I mean, Gretchen immediately looks at me and says, are you okay? That's the first thing she said. <laughs> and I was afraid. I was really afraid. Because of raising a daughter in this world, I thought, oh, my goodness, okay? But, the, but my life changed, I mean changed. On October 5th, 2009, Reagan Capri Martin was born. And this is a picture of my little sunshine. And so... Um, I mean, she is. She is my sunshine. I love her so much. We named her Reagan Capri. Her nickname is President Shortpants, and she is the <laughs> sweetest, most adorable, cutest, snuggly. I love her so much, so much, so much. She's four years old now. And so <clears throat> um, I have been given this unbelievable responsibility of, with, you know, alongside my wife of raising her. And, and I just got to tell you, if you're a dad with me, listen, um, we're in a war. I mean, we are in a war against a culture that has been lying to our, adult, our, our daughters. And so we, it's time that, that we declare war against this culture. And it's a horrible time to grow up to be a girl because of the lies that this culture tells our daughters. And so if you have a daughter, God has placed you as the guardian, as the gatekeeper of your house to make sure that you love and protect and cherish that little girl so that she can grow up to be the kind of woman that God has created her to be. And so um, God knew that I would need help. And so I think that's why he gave me a son first. And if you were to ask JP, who's eight years old right now, if you were to ask him, JP, what's your number one job? He'll say, protect Reagan. Number one job, protect Reagan. Um, JP is obsessed with zombies. And so we often talk of the zombie apocalypse. And we're preparing. We're always preparing. Hey, what would you do if we were in this place right here and the zombie apocalypse happening right now? What's, what would you do? And he'll say, first things, we get Reagan. So it's, it's like deep in his DNA. And then secondly, we climb up on something because, you know, elevation is our friend. Zombies don't climb well, so we got to get up high. Okay? I mean, we plan. We are ready. <clears throat> in fact, um, 
just this, this past Thursday, we went out with some friends to a restaurant, like a sports bar kind of place, to watch the soccer match, which is crazy how you can lose and still advance. That's, that's maybe I don't understand the sport that much, right? <laughs> or, and if everybody would just quit laying on the ground and crying the whole time, I'd enjoy it more, too. <laughs> Stand up, act like a man, memorize Philippians 2.14, do everything without complaining or arguing, and then kick it. All right, so anyway. And I can look at JP across the restaurant, and I, I can just go, what's the number one thing? And he will go get Reagan. He'll just keep an eye on her, wherever she is, because he knows. Because um, I've trained him. Because we're going to protect that little princess. That's our job. God has given her to us, and we're going to protect her and, and, and really protect her. In fact, one time last year, I took my kids to go see Santa Claus at St. John's Town Center, whatever it's called. And so it's my like, annual trip there. And so I go... And Santa Claus is on a break. I didn't know he takes breaks, but he's on a break. He's tired. And so we're waiting in the playground to wait on Santa Claus, right? And so they're in the playground playing around. And then JP comes running up to me with this kind of worried look on his face. Like, and you can tell as a parent, something is going to rise. <laughs> and so I see him and he's like, Dad, can I tell you something? And then I, I look at the playground and then I say, JP, why's that kid crying? Because there's a kid on the playground crying. And he goes, well, he pushed Reagan on the slide. And I said, and? JP said, and so I pushed him off the slide. <laughs> you know what I did? High five, bud. High five. <laughs> we went into Dick's Sporting Goods. I said, you pick out anything you want. Anything you want. Forget it. I don't care. <clears throat> and if, if you have parenting concerns, carly.arkell at coe22.com. She'll answer those for you. So, and some people will say, are you trying to rise, raise a violent child? Yes. Yeah. You know what the Bible says? That the, that the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing and violent men take hold of it. Because we are at war. We are at war. Our war is not against flesh and blood, but it's against principalities of evil. And there are evil things and evil thoughts and evil philosophies and evil ideas that, that are not the friends of our daughters. And listen, daughters, you have been believing some lies of this world. And the biggest lie that you believe of this world is you don't know how valuable you are. I mean, that's the biggest. If, you just get, if you're a daughter, if you could just get this one thing, if I could just get you to see you from God's perspective, then you might change your practices. But you've got to understand how valuable you are. And I believe that God placed me as the dad of Reagan Capri to echo the truth that comes from him that she is, she is so stinking valuable. When I was in college, um, I worked at, at this camp. The camp I got saved at was this little ghetto camp in Venezuela, South Carolina. And, the, and the, the guy that led me to the Lord there invited me to come back after I got saved and, and to be the camp pastor. And so it's the... I, I preached my first sermon there. I led my first Bible study. All that ministry stuff for me happened, happened there first. And we weren't allowed to date girls on staff, but, you know, it, didn't really, it never really stopped us. So I asked this girl out on, the, on our staff. She was one of the counselors. And, and you couldn't really go on real dates. You just share M&Ms at the canteen. You know, it wasn't like a real thing. And then, but we, occasionally we get a weekend off. And so I was going to go pick her up and take her out on this date. And so I drive out to her place in Lakeview, South Carolina, which is a suburb of Dillon. So it was real nice. You know what I mean? It's awesome. <laughs> So I go to pick her up, and, um, and she was one of 12, like the disciples. They were very biblical in their family. There were 12. She had eight brothers, and, and she was one of four sisters. And when I showed up to pick her up, all eight brothers were there, okay? All eight were there. They all played college football, and they were like heroes in our little area of the world. And, um, and so when I, I go to pick her up, she's not ready, because why would you be ready on time? And so her dad comes out and says, boy, come here. I want to talk to you before you take Samantha out. And I was like, yes, sir. And so I really thought their family was going to be so impressed with me because the middle schoolers at camp were so impressed with me because I was the camp pastor. They were not impressed at all. And so I go to pick her up, and he says, hey, I want you to walk out here. I want to show you something in the barn in the backyard. And so we go out to the backyard, and there's a barn. And he um, he's, like, has a hobby. He would restore 57 Chevys. That's what he did. And so he had three 57 Chevys in this barn in his backyard. And one he had just purchased, and it was... It was a pile. And then the second one was about halfway done. You could kind of see it coming along. And then he pulls this tarp off of one. So it's covered in a covered building. So this is thing is, is pretty awesome. And he pulls the tarp off. And there's this, I mean, just mint condition, cherry, red and white 57 Chevy. And we start walking around it. And he starts telling me about all the things he's done. And, you know, I'm just nervous. Anytime you're like a... I was probably 21 years old or so, and, and, or maybe younger than that. I was probably 20, 19. And, and any time you're, I'm just trying to take his daughter out, so I can't even hear what he's saying, you know, because I'm just nervous, and we're trying to have this little dialogue. And, and he's walking around, he's telling me all about it, and he's telling me about the engine in it, and it doesn't have an inline six. It's got this, you know, four-wheel barrel carburetor, first fuel-injected Chevy, whatever. 
And then he pulls out the keys and says, you want to crank it up? I was like, okay, yes, sir. And so I get in there and I crank it up and I rev it just enough so he knows I'm a man that likes cars, but not too much and thinks I'm crazy redneck, you know what I mean? So I'm trying to get that balance, you know, just right there. And then he says, hey, you want to, you want to take it out on your date tonight? I was like, you kidding me? Yes, sir. And he, are you being serious? And he goes, yeah, I'm being serious. Now, just a couple of things, you know, I've invested a lot of time, effort, energy, and money in this vehicle. So I just got to know a few things. Would you be responsible? Oh, yes, sir. I would be so responsible. Would you race anybody? Because, you know, this is South Carolina. Every redneck's going to pull up to you with a mullet and a Camaro, and they're going to run a race, and you got to, you can't race it, even though it'll beat them all. No, sir, I would never race it. I'll go to speed limit. I'll go a little under the speed limit. I'll two hands, you know, that'll be good. And he says, would you park it close to the other cars? They would door ding it and stuff. No, sir, I would never do that. I'll be careful. I'll park all the way out to the edge of the parking lot, make sure nobody else is around it. You know, I'll put police tape, whatever you need. Let me just drive this car. Go through the whole thing. And then he eventually just says, well, first of all, if you think I'm going to let you drive my car, you're out of your mind, okay? (laughs) Out of your mind. And then he goes, gets real serious, goes eyeball to eyeball with me. And he goes, and secondly, what I'm about to let you drive away with here for the next four or five hours is infinitely more precious to me than this hunk of metal. You take care of my daughter. And me and this girl get in the car, and we drive off to our date. I don't even know where we went, but I know this. We got home 45 minutes early, okay? (laughs) Because he knew, he knew that she was valuable. And what I want to do fundamentally is teach my daughter, and I want you to teach your daughters And daughters, I want you to understand how valuable you are. And so if we pick pick up where we are with this couple in Song of Solomon chapter 8, if we pick it up in verse 8, we're going to find out how she ended up where she ended up. Because where she ended up is where you want to end up. Happily married to this godly man that loves God and loves you, and that you are the woman that God has created you to be. And so we're going to find out here that it does not happen by accident. And so in chapter 8, verse 8... The brothers, her brothers, start off talking. And what we're going to see here is that nowhere in the book is her father mentioned. Now, God's ideal is that a mom and a dad would raise kids. If you're a single mom, I got good news. That with God's help and in the context of maybe this church, that God can do amazing things through you and what you're doing. And I, I can't even imagine what a hard job you have, but it's the same job that the, the mother of the Shulamite woman here had, and she turned out to be this ideal But she had the help of some brothers. And so her older brothers, which are going to be the authority in her life, they're going to speak first. In verse 8, here we go. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. Well, that's unfortunate, all right? (laughs) What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? Well, what they're saying is not, they're not talking about her anatomically. They're talking about her age. That's just the way the big brothers talk, I guess. And so what they're saying is our little sister's like 9 or 10 years old, okay? She's not developed yet. And they're already thinking about the day that she gets married. Because they understand as the authority in her life that they are going to walk her down the aisle one day. And they are thinking about the future. And they're letting the preferred future drive the decisions they're making as the authority figures in her life today. You see, I do, I don't know, 50 or 60 weddings a year. And... and and I'm telling you, they get more and more real every time because I've got a little girl now. And so my favorite part, I say, you know, everybody please stand. Everybody stands up and they start playing the Here Comes the Bride deal. And, and then the doors open and there she is in her white dress and her dad, she's on her dad's arm. And everybody always looks at her and they look back at the groom because he's always got the little wobble chin, you know, wobble baby. And he's like, oh, like he's about to cry. And the bigger you are, the more you cry, all right? The biggest cry I've ever seen is third row right there big old dude too just about sucked his lip all the way through into his lung and it came back out right good to see you man and so love that part and then now everybody likes that and then I look back at the dad and you know what the dad is thinking as he's walking his girl down the aisle I mean there he is and he is about what he's about to do symbolically he's doing actually he's gonna give The hand of his daughter, it goes from under his authority to under this other dude's authority. And he's hoping and praying that he did everything within his power to get his girl on the right pathway so the trajectory of her life continues to lead to the place that God had created her. And so what these brothers are doing is from a very young age, while she is still little, we have a little sister, she hadn't even developed yet, 
And they're already thinking about this trajectory or this pathway that they want to put her on that leads somewhere. Because you've heard me talk about the pathway a hundred million times in here. That it's your direction, not your intention, that determines destination. That today, when this service is over, Gretchen and I are going to Miami for the week. Remember I told you we have two kind of vacations? Last week, we did a staycation in Jacksonville with the kids. That was our Presbyterian vacation, okay? That means all the elect come, and it's very orderly. And then we're about to go on our um, Pentecostal vacation this week. You know what that is? Speaking in tongues, laying on hands. That's what's going on, Miami style, okay? So we're going to Miami. So when we pack up the car, if we get on 95 North, we ain't going to Miami. I don't care how much we pray. I don't care how much we prep. I don't care how, where our reservations are, 95 North does not go to Miami. And so I don't, your prayer life, your preparation, listen, it is your direction, not your intention that determine your destination. And if you're the parent of a daughter, guess what? God has put her in under your authority that you are going to help put her on a trajectory that leads somewhere. And so these brothers, from a young age, for their sister, the authority, they're thinking about her future and not what she wants right now. And this girl, what we're going to find out about this Shulamite is that she submitted to the authority in her life. Because guess what? Submission isn't submission until you don't like it. Submission isn't submission until you disagree. And what we see here is that she has been submitted to the authority, which are her brothers. And they loved her enough to not give her what she wanted, but what she needed most so that she could become ready to be the princess that God had called her to be. Verse 9, here's, here's their plan. If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. And if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. They are talking about her sexual morality here. They're saying, if she is a wall, if she's sexually moral, then praise the Lord. We will celebrate her. We will adorn her. We'll throw the biggest wedding party in the, this world has ever seen if she is a wall. But if she is a door, you know what a door is? The boy knocks, say, hey, come on in. If that's the kind of girl she is, then they say we will enclose her with boards of cedar. We will build a coffin around her. In other words, we'll do whatever it takes to protect her. If she doesn't understand that, that sex is a gift from God, we will not let her misuse this gift. Why? Because all sin a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. The ramifications of that are so big that if she doesn't have the maturity level to handle that, then we will step in and help her handle that. That's what they're talking about here. That, that she, we're hoping and praying that we speak the, speak the kind of life into her where she understands how valuable she is so that she will be a wall. You know what a wall is? Like you ain't getting through the wall. That she kind of has a godly rudeness to her. All the little boys that come stepping around, she's like, look here, I'm not looking for a boy friend. When I get old enough and a, and a godly man that wants to pursue me for marriage, that's when she begins to respond. And so she, she responds in verse 10. She speaks up. She says, I was a wall. And my breasts were like towers. Well, praise God. There you go, all right? And then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. And this is crazy. You're supposed to read this and turn a cartwheel. That's what you're supposed to do. So first and foremost, she says, okay, brothers, um, I, I played by your rules. Okay, I didn't like them at first. We'll talk about that in a second. But I played by your rules. I, was, I pursued godliness and, and not what was popular. And I was a wall. Right? I was well. I saved myself for marriage. And now that I've grown up, that's what the tower thing is all about. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. That's a total play on words. In verse 11, Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman, and he let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. If you were to read this, if you were to read Song of Solomon all in one sitting, it's only eight chapters. You get to this part, your head's supposed to explode. You go, what? Are you kidding me? It's like a Quentin Tarantino movie. It's like the end is actually at the beginning, okay? And so what's going on here is, do you remember where she met Solomon? She met Solomon in a vineyard, right? And you remember how she got into the vineyard? She said that, that her brothers were mad at her and they made her work in the vineyard. And remember how mad she was at her brothers? She, she wouldn't even claim them as brothers. She says, my mother's sons hated me and made me work in the vineyard. Well, what was actually happening is her brothers loved her enough to make her work in the vineyard. And while that was going on, it says, Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. The word peace is shalom. The proper name for shalom is shalomon or Solomon. 
So what she's saying here is, is that the discipline that the brothers made me go through as I was a teenage girl was actually God's blessing in my life that was preparing me to meet the man of my dreams who was Solomon. And then when she says Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman and he let out the vineyard keepers, that, those were her brothers. Her brothers were the vineyard keepers and each one was to bring forth its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. So her brothers actually loved her enough to discipline her, to not give her what she wanted, but what she needed. And you, do you remember? Do you remember what she thought about it? I mean, go back to chapter one, verses five, six, and seven. Here's what she said. She said, I am, I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Don't gaze at me because I'm dark, because the sun has looked upon me. Again, remember that the, the cultural standard of beauty then was really pasty white and chubby. It's really changed now, which is a shame, because I'd have been smoking hot back in the day, all right? But now it's kind of emaciated and, and really tan, all right? And so she said, I got a farmer's tan, because while everybody else was sitting inside eating grapes, I had to go outside and pick grapes and work in the vineyard. And then she says, my mother's sons were angry with me. So she didn't like the discipline as a teenager, right? She's like, because her mother's sons are her brothers, but she's not even claiming them. She's like, you're not my brother, you're just my mom's kid. That's how mad she is. And so she's saying, my mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Verse 7 of chapter 1, tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lay down at noon, for why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? And so what that means is the ones that veiled themselves by the flocks of the companions were the prostitutes. And she says, even though you're the king, king, I am not going to lower my standards to get you to go out with me. This is the wall part. She is actually becoming who her brothers intended her to become. And again, if you go back to chapter 1, she didn't really love the discipline in the moment. But when you get to chapter 8 and you see how God had prepared her to become the peasant princess, it was through the discipline, the love, the authority, and the accountability of the brothers that God had put as the authority figures in her life. I mean, this is huge. In other words, God has been working behind the scenes this whole time to help, through the authority of her brothers, turn this Shulamite girl into the girl that he always dreamed that, that she could be. Guys, do you remember the things that, that you're supposed to be looking for? If you're a godly man looking for a godly woman, there's four things. They all start with H. I always try to make it simple, and they all start with H, and that's why guys like to go to church here. The first one's holy, right? You're looking for a woman who's holy. Well, you see that she was a wall. She was holy. But fundamentally, what that means is nobody can be holy in and of themselves. Our holiness is like filthiness to God. So it, it fundamentally means that you're looking for a woman who has surrendered her life to the lordship of Jesus Christ and that his holiness gets imputed unto her. So we're looking for somebody that's holy. You're looking for somebody that's hardworking. See, this girl worked in the vineyard while all of her friends were getting manicures and pedicures and hanging out at the beach and going to prom and riding around in brand new cars when they were 16, what she was doing is she had a job in the vineyard and she's working. Now again, she's got a farmer's tan and she's mad at her brothers, but it was creating in her this character of a hardworking woman. Because let me, let me warn you single guys, if you're dating a girl or you're courting a girl and you're moving towards marriage and she's not hardworking and she just, she, she kind of has this attitude of entitlement if she expects in the first year of your marriage that you've got to buy her a Jeep nicer than the Barbie Jeep that her dad bought her, I'm telling you, run, Forrest, run, because you'll never be able to keep up, all right? You don't want to marry a real housewife of Jacksonville. You want to marry a real godly woman from 1122. That's what you're looking for. And there is a difference. All the women in the Bible that are spoken of in a positive way were hard-working women, every single one of them. So it's holy, it's hard-working, it's humble. You want a humble girl? Humility doesn't think, it, it, it's not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. And so remember early on we said she was humble because of the way she spoke of her external beauty. Don't look at me because I got a farmer's tan and I don't match the cultural norm. But now we find out that her real humility came because she was submitted to the authority in her life. Single guys, if you're dating a girl and you're pursuing marriage, you need to look at how she submits to the authority in her life. Does she honor and respect her mom and dad? Does she honor and respect and submit to the authority that it's her boss, her teacher, her coach? Because I'm telling you, the crazy thing is, in God's economy, if you marry her, you become the head. Whether you're qualified to be or not. All right, it's like the president. It's either a good one or a bad one, but he is the president. And so you're the head. If you're the husband, you're the head of that family. 
And you might be a good one or a bad one. I don't know. You're going to lead it somewhere. And so if she can't submit, first and foremost, to the king leader, Jesus, and then submit to the other authorities that are in her life now, there's no way she'll be able to submit to you. Because I've met you, and you're not that submittable to to begin with. So this is like a lifetime character trait that she's got to build up. And so this girl is humble, and then the fourth one is this, hot. And I shouldn't say hot, but it starts with an H, and it's easier to remember. But here's the thing. Attraction's important. Attraction's important. Now, now here's the thing about her, though. She's already said that she doesn't match the cultural norm of beauty. Because the cultural norm of beauty was, you know, real pale skin. And she had a farmer's tan. Yet, in Solomon's eyes, she was beautiful. She was beautiful. Remember, on their honeymoon, he says, you are all together lovely. That means every part of you, everything about you is lovely. And you ask any dude in here 30 years and older, we've all met some girl where externally it was great. And then you got to know them and you thought, oh, wow, not awesome. You know how the Bible says it in Proverbs? Like a gold ring in a pig snout is a woman without discretion. You know what that means? If you were to walk up to some old nasty, grimy, sloppy pig and it had a beautiful 24 karat gold ring in its nose, you would look at that and you would go, what a waste. What a waste. And so you walk up to a girl in our day, and she's externally beautiful, but she doesn't have discretion. She doesn't know what's right from wrong. You know what? At first, you're like, wow, that's a shiny ring. And then you get a little closer, and you're like, man, that's just a sloppy pig. What a waste. And in fact, guess what? In our society, if you've got enough money, you can look like whatever you want to. You can make it bigger or smaller or taller or change the color. or It don't matter. And so it's not about the external beauty. That's just a waste if that's all it is. And every guy in here will tell you that'll only be attractive for a second. And it gets old real, real quick. But that woman that walks in this humble confidence in who God has created her to be, I'm telling you, a wife of noble character, who can find? Her husband will praise her at the gates. But a woman whose who's, um, adornment is just external beauty, it's not that attractive. You know why? Because you've got two things working against you, time and gravity. They are not your friend, all right? And so... Fellas, you're looking for that woman that's holy, hardworking, humble, and hot. And this is who the Shulamite woman has become. Why? Because of the involvement of what her brothers did in her life. Now, she had to make the choices on her own, but her brothers put her in the kind of environments that would help produce this kind of woman. And so she says in verse 12, My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand and the keepers of the fruit, two hundred. O you who dwell in the gardens with companions, listening for your voice, let me hear it. You know what she's saying here? She's saying two things. One, she, she understands how valuable she is. She says, look, the vineyards are valuable, but my vineyard, you can keep the money for the fruit. Okay? So she understands how valuable she is. The second thing is this, that she finally understands the role that her brothers played in her life. She's saying, how good is our God that he has been working behind the scenes the whole time? And at one point, when I was younger, I thought my brothers was the, were the enemy. I thought they hated me, but actually their discipline was God's provision for me. That you can discipline without love, but you cannot love without discipline. And so she is thanking God and her brothers and saying to Solomon, I am the woman that I am now, and a big part of it is because because God put these authority figures in my life. Teenagers, let me talk to you about something. Okay, if you're 16, 17 years old, your parents are idiots, right? Amen? Amen, right, okay. And here's why, here's why. Here's why you think they're idiots. One, you know everything. So that's awesome, right? You know everything. And so, and then the other thing is you're judging your parents right now really based on their fashion choices. And so you look at them and you go, how could I take life advice from a man that wears business socks and Crocs. I don't think, if you can make that kind of foolish decision and go in public, I don't think I can listen to you. But if you ask everybody else in here, and it's okay, here's the crazy thing about it. When we, all these people in here, when we were all 17 years old, our parents were idiots too. They were, it was crazy, all right? It was crazy. And then, and then, when we were about 19 or 20 years old, overnight, I mean, it happened in an instant. I don't know if it was something they ate or something on C-SPAN or I don't know, but they just immediately became brilliant. Do you remember that day, folks? Do you remember when you realized, oh my goodness, my parents are brilliant. I can remember when it was for me, um, when it was my freshman year of college and I joined a fraternity. And at the end of my first year, 
in this fraternity, I looked at all the fraternity brothers and went, oh my gosh, you guys are idiots, and Perry Martin is a genius. And I called him on the phone. Hey, Daddy, what's up, son? I said, thank you. For what? Thank you for raising me the way you raised me. Well, why'd you say that? I said, well, thank you that when I was 16, 17 years old in high school, you didn't let me go out on a Monday night and a Tuesday night or a Wednesday night or a Thursday night. In fact, I only got to go out one night a week, and I had to choose either Friday or Saturday. So when I got to college my freshman year, I went crazy. And I went Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. But I didn't do Tuesday because I just would do my homework, right? And, but all my fraternity brothers, they did all the nights. They went every night of the week. They just went out. Now that it's at the end of the semester, I got A's. And they got P's for probation. <laughs> I called my dad and said, you're brilliant. You see, that's what she is saying here. Thank you, brothers. Thank you. You see, the discipline wasn't fun while I was going through it. But only the illegitimate child doesn't get disciplined. That's what Hebrews says. That God loves us enough to discipline us, to prune us, so that we can grow into who he has created us to be. And then she finishes the book up. Here's what she says. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag, which means stud. Be like a stud on the mountains of spices. You guys know what that means? So in this book, she speaks first, she speaks last, she speaks most. Sound like your marriage? So it's good. She's aggressive. This is not offense, defense. This is an invitation. This is an invitation. This is kind of the Bible way of saying, and they lived happily ever after. That's kind of what it means. They lived happily ever after. Now, let me ask you a question. How do you get there? Because happily ever after does not happen by happenstance. You don't accidentally get there. The path that you were on determines where you were going. And here's the point. The path to happily ever after is paved with patience and purity, protection and provision. The path that you are on is paved with patience and purity, protection and provision. So I want to talk to three categories. One, parents, talk to moms and dads. I'm mostly going to talk to the dads because I've never been a mom. Then I want to talk to the brothers. And then I want to talk to the daughters. First of all, moms and dads, mostly dads. Ready? Um, let, me just, let me just give you some advice. These aren't even Bible verses. This is, this is what I think, all right? This is, and this is 15 years of student ministry and four years raising a daughter so far and eight years of raising a son so far. So I've never raised a teenager. I've never raised a daughter to marriage yet. But but here's just a, a little advice from me. Dads, this might be the number one thing. Love mama. I mean, love mama. Pursue mama. Date your wife in front of your kids. Your kids need to see you love her and pursue her and, and treat her with such honor and respect and dignity. You see, I want to I pursue Gretchen and value Gretchen and love Gretchen so much that I absolutely set the standard so high for Reagan Capri that it ruined some little punk's chance of coming sniffing around my house. You understand? Like if some dude ever pulls up my driveway and honks the horn, he better work for UPS and be dropping off a package because he ain't picking nobody up. All right? I want, I want Reagan Capri to be so valued and so honored and look what it looks like to see Daddy love Mama so much that I'm telling you the standard is so high, is so high, that if, that if, you know, whenever she goes out on her first date, like 25, 26 years old, whatever it is, and some fella comes to pick her up, and she walks out to the car, if he doesn't open that door for her, I want her to just do a lap right around the backside and then walk right back in the house. <laughs> Ain't happening. No, no, no. I want her to see me spend a whole lot of money on my wife because I want Reagan to understand that she and her mama are worth it. And if some little punk comes around and he can't afford it, then I want her to know that she is worth affording. I want to set that kind of standard. So husbands, dads, one of the first things you can do is you can love mama. I mean, love her, love her, love her. It will give a picture for your daughter of what it's supposed to look like. This one's probably the most important. And then you, 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 every opportunity you get, you point them to Jesus. Every opportunity you get, you point your kids to Jesus. In every conversation. You see, I'll have conversations. I had this conversation with Reagan yesterday. She had a little pink bathing suit. We were going to the pool. I was like, Reagan, what's your favorite color? Pink. I said, do you know who invented pink? Jesus. Like in my house, if you don't know the answer, you say Jesus, you're probably pretty close. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah, he sure did. Do you know why he created pink, Reagan? Do you know at one point in history there was no such thing as pink? And then God Almighty said, I have an idea. Pink. 
And he knew that you would be here one day and that you would love it. You see, anytime I can, I try to point my kids to the gospel or to the attributes of God. And the Bible says every good and perfect gift is from above. I want my kids to associate every good and perfect gift with the fact that God, their Heavenly Father, has given them this gift. And we have those conversations. When my kids fight, we talk about the gospel. We talk about reconciliation. We don't even use those words, but we talk about how we can be friends with God by what Christ did on the cross and that that they can forgive each other because of what Christ did on the cross. We hug and make up, so as much as we can. And listen, our, our new-gen ministry here, see, we see us as a church, we see us as a partner with you, that you are the pastor parents. See, we live in a society where you take your kids to the experts to teach them stuff and then pick them back up when they've learned this stuff. We are not the spiritual experts for you to drop your kids off for us to teach them the spiritual stuff and then you pick them back up. We are the equippers and the cheerleaders for you, pastor parents, so that you could be the primary disciple maker in your house. You see, when we want to teach Reagan gymnastics, we take her to the, to the gym, and they teach them gymnastics, sort of. They really just put on bathing suits and frolic around in the gym for an hour and charge me $100, but whatever. <laughs> That's not how it works here, okay? We're, your, we're, we're, we're partners with you. So every night when I tuck my kids in, man, we, we are praying. If, if you're the dad of a daughter, I don't care if she's 4 or 14, if she lives in your house, you ought to be praying Psalm 139, 14 over her every single night. You ought to tell her, hey, listen, baby. The almighty word of God says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. That God's works are wonderful. You're one of those works. I need you to know that full well. And here's the thing too, single guys, you're going to marry somebody's daughter. And again, I don't care if she's 4 or 40, she needs to hear those words spoken into her life. That your, your words have the power of life. And so you got to be like the pastor parent and point everything you can to Jesus. Also, dads. You ought to date your little girl. You ought to take her out on dates. You ought to take her out on dates. There was, um, this, is, this is so cool. I did a girl's wedding uh, a few weeks ago. She was actually one of our staff members. She got saved at 1122. She has a great dad. He was here at the 9 o'clock service. They ate breakfast every, like once a week, every week from all the years that I knew her. And then she just married this guy and they moved to Dubai. <laughs> so guess what? All the bridesmaids eat breakfast with the dad now. They meet him at Metro Diner or wherever they go, and he just sits there and cries and the whole time, right? <laughs> but, man, I'm telling you, he, he set a standard for, her, for his little girl. And so I take Reagan out on dates, and I spend money on her. And, again, I want her to go on a date with me all throughout the years, and then some other punk's going to try to take her on a date, and she's going to be like, that guy's a loser. His dates are terrible compared to my dad's dates. That's what I'm trying to do, you understand? <laughs> and so, but fundamentally, I just need her to know how valuable she is. Also, this is a big one. Coach Lee used to tell me this all the time. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Listen to me. Parents, you know you're responsible for the friends that your kids have. And I know some of you are like, oh, no, my daughter's 15 years old and I've given up on that. Here's the thing I would tell you, Dad. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up on the, on the wardrobe battles. Don't give up on the time together battles. You get to determine how much time you spend together. Don't give up. Um, Do less trips. Travel less. Spend less time out of the house. Make less money so that you can spend more time with your kids, more time with your kids, more time with your kids. Because when she's in her 20s, what she's going to know is, did my dad fight for me or did he not fight for me? Now, when you're fighting for him, it's going to feel like you're fighting with him, but your battle is not against flesh and blood. But don't stop fighting. Don't ever stop fighting. Those little girls are worth the fight. And you're fighting against a culture that is lying to them every single day of their life. They're being lied to and lied to and lied to. And so when it's little, then yeah, it's tea parties and Barbie and Dora the Explorer. That's what I'm into now. All right, little illegal aliens, backpacks, little demon-possessed backpacks. All right, but I don't care. Whatever she's into, that's what I'm into. And I do less speaking engagements and I have less meetings with you. Do you know that? You know, part of the reason I can't meet with you is because of Reagan Capri. And God has given me this incredible spiritual gift that if you don't like me, Jimmy cracks corn, and I don't care because Reagan loves me. And I'm going to spend time with her, and that means I can't spend time with you. Okay? And so you fight for it, and you never give up, and you fight like crazy for her because she's worth it. And if you haven't been doing a good job the last 15 years and you think it's too late, it's never too late because we serve a timeless God. And so parents, 
You are in charge of their friends. You, you get this. You are. He, the Bible says it this way. He who walks with the wise grows wise. The companion of fools suffers harm. If you've got a kid and, and they're in our student ministry age, and like between 6th and 12th grade, y'all, we are trying to, we're trying to lob you a big fat softball where you can just get them plugged in here to our student ministry so they can get connected with some other people that, that God is changing their lives and they can get connected with some adults that love them and are going to say the things to them that you want your kids to hear. And the crazy part is, is they'll lift, listen to some 21-year-old that you've never met before even more than they'll listen to you right now. You see, I bribe two guys on staff to spend time with JP. I got, we got an intern and a pastoral resident. They're both in their early 20s. And I bribe them to come spend time with him. You know why? Here's why. Because I know a day is coming. I think it's actually already here with JP at 8 years old where, where there will be some things in his life that he won't tell me about. And I know some of you cool 40-year-old parents like me, you're like, no, not my kid. I mean, I didn't tell my daddy everything, but I'm going to tell, but my kid's going to tell me everything because I'm so cool. Now, you're a dork, and they're not going to talk to you. <laughs> you know how I know? Because you didn't talk to your parents about everything, did you? You're like, oh, that's different. It ain't different. And so here's what I know. Here's what I know. My kid's going to talk to somebody, and I don't want them getting their advice from the idiot sitting next to them in English class. I want some young godly men that have built a relationship with my son that partner with me to help raise that little boy, okay? So I bribe him. I tell him, you guys, you come pick him up whenever you want. You can take him wherever you want to take him, and I'll pay for it. And they're like, you know what? He really likes three forks. I think we should go there. I'm like, fine. fine. It's worth it. It's worth a hundred bucks. It really is. And so, and I know some of you are thinking, yeah, you know what, I've tried to get my kid to go to youth, but they don't want to. Look, they didn't want to brush their teeth. They didn't want to go to school. You make them do all these things that have such temporary value. I mean, are teeth important? I don't, it depends on where you're from. Kentucky doesn't think so. They do fine. England, they're good, right? But if your kid gets a cavity, like, ah, what are we going to do? And yet, man, we toss you this big, fat softball. Every Wednesday night, hundreds of kids show up here. And, and, and they could be a part of this culturally principle, show me your friends and I'll show you your future, okay? I mean, look, on a Sunday morning, we got several rows of teenagers sitting right here every single week. They'll be first to the altar, they'll sing with their hands up. You want your kids hanging out with these. I know they think their parents are idiots, but so does your kid. And you want them with these kids. And you want them with the adults that we've got plugging into our student ministry. So moms and dads, have a plan, have a plan. Start early. Like, when are they getting a cell phone? When can they go on dates? What are they going to wear? Those kinds of things. And you don't let the culture determine the rules in your house. You don't let Hollywood determine what, who, what gets to entertain your kids. You have a plan. You talk about it early. You don't give up. You don't give up. You don't give up. You cultivate an environment that with God's help produces holy, hardworking, humble, and attractive one day in the right man's eyes. To the brothers. Let me talk to you, brothers. And what I mean, my brothers, if you're a single Christian in this room, all right, if you're a dude and you're a single Christian, you're like, I, I don't have a daughter yet, but I'd like to marry a daughter someday, all right. Let me just tell you this. You have a sister in Christ. Treat her as such. That's how this thing started. They said, we have a little sister. If you're a Christian young man or old man, if you're a Christian man, you're single, and you attend this church, look around. Look around the room. They're your sisters. You begin to treat them as your sisters. You don't treat them as a commodity. The way you treat a commodity is you purchase a commodity and you use it up for yourself. And you take, 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 take. And then when you're done with the commodity, you sell it or you trade it in and then you get a new commodity. That's how this world has taught you to treat women. The scriptures teach us something else, fellas. That every woman, every female that you've ever come eyeball to eyeball with is somebody that Jesus Christ died on the cross for. And if you love Jesus, then they are your sister and you treat them like your sister. Every single one of them. Whether you want to date them or not, or if they're four years old or 84 years old or everybody in between, you value the women here at the Church of 1122 because you can't treat them like a commodity all your single years and then one day go to a wedding, your own, put on a rented tuck, say, I do, and then all of a sudden be able to love them like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Because you're going to play like you practice and you're practicing treating them in an inappropriate way. So I'll say it a few ways, Okay. Um, <clears throat> the, Bible, the Bible uses this like shepherd language a lot. And it, and it talks about there being a shepherd. Our chief shepherd is Jesus. But then Jesus assigns under shepherds. Shepherd and pastor is the same word, okay? 
And so there's shepherd and then there's sheep. And sheep are the people that need to be fed and protected and known and cared for. And then there are sheep dogs, and they help the shepherd accomplish that with the sheep. And then there are wolves. And what the Bible says, it says it all throughout the New Testament, that there will be times when wolves will move into flocks or wolves will move into churches and they'll try to take advantage of the weak. Now, most of the time it's talking about doctrinally and theologically. And then the Bible says to the shepherds of those flocks that you should not pet the wolves, you should not try to rehab the wolves, you should kill the wolves. That's what you do. So if you're a single guy around here and you're a serial dater and you're prowling around this flock like a wolf, I got news for you. Hi, I'm the shepherd. And you're not welcome here. And God gave shepherds a rod and a staff. And the staff had a crook on it, and it was to reach out and grab the wayward sheep and reel them in. Some of you ladies got to get reeled in. We'll get to that in a second. But you also get a rod. And what you did with the rod, it had a big knob on the end. And when you would see a, a, a wolf, you would take that knob, you'd crack him in the head and kill him in the name of Jesus. Right? That's what you would do. So if that's you, fellas, if you have a history of mistreating women, of using them, of misusing the authority and, and, the, and the, um, I mean, the unbelievable responsibility that you have as a man to be a taker instead of a servant, then you've got two options. Option number one, and this would be my preference, is that you would repent, that you would turn to Jesus, that you would surrender your life to him, that you would write a bunch of apology letters. I don't even want you to go face to face. I want you to write a letter to the women that you've mistreated and that you've used, and that in the name of Jesus, you would apologize and keep your distance, right? And then if that's you, man, the right hand of fellowship. The other option is, if you're like, nah, I'm just going to take, 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 then guess what? You get the right foot of fellowship, and I want you out. You know why? Hebrews 13 says, there will come a day where I, I, will have to stand before God Almighty and give an account for this flock. And for this to be a movement for all people to deepen and discover a relationship with Jesus Christ, then it's got to be a safe place, a safe place for every woman in here. And so, fellas, amen. And and let me just tell you this, guys. Let me try to go from a positive. One of the things I'm trying to do in my eight-year-old son's life is I want him to value his sister so much, and he really does. We went tubing yesterday, and we get in the boat, and without even telling him, they're sitting on the back of the boat with their little life vest on, and he just puts his arm around her and hangs on to her. Why? Because he values her. That's what we're treating him to do, teaching him to do. And you know why? Because when he... When he gets old enough to start pursuing a girl, I want him to have so much practice in, in treating a girl with dignity who happens to be his sister that he can begin to transfer that, that if he ever dates one of your daughters, that you would be able to trust him because he knows how to value and treat a girl with dignity. Fellas, if you're a man, then it's time to stand up and act like a man and love and cherish and honor and treat with dignity every female that you come in contact with. Every one. And be the hero. I mean, really be the hero. In a, in a time and in a place and in a culture where the enemy is coming against every female that lives in our culture. And lying to her every single day. And saying, if you're not beautiful, you're not lovable. And the only way to be beautiful is, it's ridiculous. Nobody can even keep up with that standard. And then you... You could be a hero, single guys, and step in and be totally different than every other man in Jacksonville. And you could have the reputation as a single Christian man in Jacksonville of something's wrong with that guy. He's different. Yeah. No, it's like he cares more about me than what he can get from me. And I just got news for you, guys. On, the, on behalf of all the single women that are in our church, that would make you a very valuable, valuable, valuable um, person here in Jacksonville. Trust me on that, all right? So guys, that's you. To the brothers. They're your sister. Treat them that way. To the daughters. There's two categories here. If you are a wall, if you're sexually moral, if you're a wall, if you're holy, hardworking, humble, if that's you, okay, then be patient. Be patient. Pursue Jesus. Understand that his grace is sufficient for you. And if you're like, yeah, you know what? But I still, I want to meet my Solomon. Praise God. God put that desire in you. So here's what you do. You run the race that Christ has marked out for you. And then as you're running the race, finding your full sufficiency in the grace of Jesus Christ, knowing that he and he alone is more than enough, and Jerry Maguire's a liar. No dude's going to complete you. Only Christ can complete you. Knowing that full well, running that race, then occasionally you look to the left, you look to the right. 
And if you see some godly man running there with you, then you just kind of pull, run over there next to him close. Okay? Now he's kind of a knucklehead, all right? And then you invite him to join your serve staff team. Because godly women, I know you guys are serving on our serve staff, right? So whatever area you're serving in, you invite that guy. Hey, you know what? We need some more help in my serve staff. And listen, single guys, that's 1122 Hebrew for ask her out. Got it? Okay. You're welcome. Now, if you were a door, if you were a door, and I just got to be honest, we got a lot of doors here. We do. We got a lot of doors here. Girls, there's a lot of you here, and you give yourself away to every guy you date. Or sometimes you don't even date them. You just hook up with them. And here's what I need you to understand, is that you're, you're too valuable for that. I mean, that's the problem. The problem's not even your practice as much, it, as much as it is your perspective. That you don't understand how valuable you are. Do you know what the Bible says about you girls? I mean, it applies to guys too, but you know what the Bible says about your value? That you were not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. You know what that means? The way you determine something's value is what would somebody pay for this? And what God decided he would use to purchase you for himself is the blood of his perfect son, Jesus Christ. That's how valuable you are. And when you let somebody touch you that's not your husband, it devalues you and you're believing the lie of the enemy because the truth of God is this. The only man that should ever get to touch you, that should ever have the privilege to touch you, that he's got to purchase that privilege. And he's got to purchase that privilege by loving you like Christ loved the church. And the way Christ loved the church is he gave himself up for her. So here's the only way a man can prove that to you. It's in the covenant of marriage that he takes every... Here's what a marriage is. I'm giving all of myself to you. With, girls, when you get married, this is what the man is saying. This is what the groom is saying. He's saying, I'm taking all of whom I am. I'm taking all my chips. I'm taking my financial chips, my relational chips, my friendship chips, my hobby chips. I'm closing the back door chips. You know, we're not just going to live together. And I'm taking everything I have and I'm pushing them all to the center of the table. And I'm standing up like the world poker tour. And I'm going, look, I am all in. It's all yours. It's all in. I am all in for you and you alone. And that's what it takes to get to touch you. And so the fundamental problem here is you, don't, you didn't know you were that valuable. At least you're not acting like it. And you're believing the lies of the world. You're believing, well, if I don't do this, he'll leave. He should. Let him go. It's fourth and long, time to punt, okay? Trust God. Trust him. And I need you to begin to see yourself. If you could see yourself the way Jesus sees you, you'd start doing what he says. If you could change your perspective to know how valuable you are, then you begin to change your practice and you'd act like it. You are too valuable to let anybody touch you except the man that will give his life for you. And that's your husband. And that's why sex outside of marriage every single time will either damage a good relationship or it'll prolong a bad one. But I got good news for you. No matter what category you fall in, maybe you're in the parents and you've been more about you than getting your kids in the right path. Or maybe you've been a brother that's been mistreating some women, or maybe you've been the daughter that's like a door, you know, there's a, there's a, really the fundamental text on God as Father is in Luke 15, where Jesus tells this parable, and he tells this parable where God is a father, and he's got two sons, and one of the sons has a fundamental problem, and the problem with the son is, he thinks his identity is, is in the pleasures of this world and the stuff of his dad, rather than finding his identity in his relationship with his father. And so he takes his inheritance early and he runs off to a foreign land and the Bible says he squanders it away on wild living. In other words, he's more concerned about what he can get right now instead of his future. And then one day, when he's feeding pigs in the pig slop, the Bible says that he comes to his senses. Can I tell you about the power of the Holy Spirit? That's my hope and prayer for today is that many, many of you would come to your senses today. And the way we treat one another, the way we allow each other to be treated that you would come to our senses. And then the Bible says that that young man, that son, comes to his senses and he begins to realize that the servants that work for his dad have a better life than he has. And so he's going to come back home and he's going to apologize to his dad. And if you grew up like I grew up and got in a lot of trouble, you would work on your apology before you would get home. And so the kid, on his way back home, he's going over his apology. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And so then the Bible says that while he was still a long way off, the dad sees him. Because every single day, the dad, his father, would get up and go out to the edge of his property, to the edge of his driveway, 
on like a rescue mission every day, and he sees his son from a long way off. And then the Bible says that the dad runs to his son. By the way, by the way Hebrew men would never run because it was a sign of humility. So they would never run. People could run to them, but grown men didn't run to kids. And so the dad runs to his son. And his son starts with the apology, Father, I've sinned against you, and I've sinned against heaven. And the dad just says, shut up. I'm not even listening to it. And he looks around, and he says, hey, bring me the best robe. And he takes a robe, a clean robe, and he wraps it around his dirty son. And it's a picture of Christ's righteousness that's imputed unto us. That when the world would look at his son, they would not see his filth, but they would see the righteous robe of the dad that was covering over the filth. That's what Christ did for us at the cross in our justification. And then he said to him, bring me the signet ring. And he takes a ring, a family ring, and he puts it on the finger of the kid, and he's re-adopting him back into the family. He's like, you used to be lost, but now you're found. You're back in the family. You are a son. And then to prove it, he says, bring me some shoes. And he puts shoes on his son. See, slaves didn't get shoes, but sons got shoes. And what he's saying to him is, and you don't have to earn your way back in. Like the slaves have a chore list, but you are family. You were bought. You were in the family again. And then he looks around and he says, kill the fatted calf because the son of mine who was dead is now alive. Guess what? If you return home to the perfect heavenly father, you don't come home to I told you so. You don't come home to I, I told you don't do that. How dare you? What were you thinking? You know what you come home to? You come home to the righteous robe that Christ purchased for you at the cross. You come home to being adopted into the family of God. You come home to sonship. And you come home to a party. And that's what you come home to. And so again, no matter what category you fall into, the God is the father to the fatherless. Even if you grew up in an environment, maybe your parents didn't do these things for you, the good news is, is that if you'll come home to Christ, then he can do those things for you. Hey, I hope this series has been helpful for you and your marriage and your parenting and all those things. And I want to close with a, um, it's kind of a long quote by... by John Piper, he wrote a book called This Momentary Marriage, and it just kind of sums up really this whole series. So I'd just like to ask you to bow your head. It's not really a prayer. I'm going to pray at the end of it. But if you would just hear these words by, by Dr. Piper. Bow your heads and close your eyes just, to, you know, just so you can really hear it. John Piper says this, Marriage is not mainly about prospering economically. It is mainly about displaying the covenant-keeping love between Christ and His church. Knowing Christ is more important than making a living. Treasuring Christ is more important than bearing children. Being united to Christ by faith is a greater source of material success than perfect sex and double income prosperity. So it is with marriage. It is a momentary gift. It may last a lifetime or it may be snatched away on the honeymoon. Either way, it is short. It may have many bright days or it may be covered with clouds. If we make secondary things primary, we will be embittered at the sorrows we must face. But if we set our face to make of marriage mainly what God designed it to be, no sorrows and no calamities can stand in our way. Every one of them will be not an obstacle to success, but a way to succeed. The beauty of the covenant-keeping love between Christ and His church shines brightest when nothing but Christ can sustain it. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, I stand here today as the most blessed man alive. God, I, I thank you so much for Gretchen and JP and Reagan and that you would bless me with such a family. And God, I understand the truth that for a long time, many years ago, I was on a trajectory that did not lead to where I am right now, but by your goodness and your grace, you chose to preach the gospel to me through a JV football coach. And God, you are a direction changer. And so God, I pray that you would change some paths in this room. God, I pray that you would change some for eternity. There are people in this room right now that are heading for a Christless eternity. God, I pray that they would surrender their life to you and that you would change their eternal destiny in this moment right now. And God, I pray for some parents in this room and they're more concerned about whether their kids like them or not than they are the future of their children. And God, I know the battle's tough, but I pray they would not give up the fight. And Holy Spirit, you would move in that place. And God, I pray for some brothers in this room that have been misusing and abusing and misleveraging what it means to be a man. And they're takers and not servants, God. And I pray for repentance. And I pray that they would confess and apologize. And they would join the battle against this culture. And that we at the Church of 1122 would, kind of, would create a kind of environment where every, where every female is treated with such honor and respect and dignity. 
And that every man in here, God, we would join the fight. God, I pray for the daughters. God, I pray for the daughters that are walls in this place. God, I pray for patience and perseverance. God, I pray that they would know in you there's more than enough. And God, I also pray for the, for the girls that have believed the lie and they don't know how valuable they are. God, I pray that you would just restore them and that you would heal them. And I pray it in the good, strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hey, would you please stand as we close? We close every week by responding to the gospel. We respond by bringing our tithes and offerings, if you're a regular, to the giving baskets around or giving boxes around the side. We respond by singing together, and we respond by coming to the altar. However you need to respond, I hope you will. Let us respond.